Well, good morning again. It's very, very good to be with you this morning. It's a great privilege to be here. Thanks to Dave and the elders for this opportunity. And I trust this morning as we look at God's word that he will uh, strengthen us and encourage us. And if you're new or visiting here uh, this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, uh, it's really wonderful to have you. And we trust that as we look at God's word this morning, that you would hear his voice. You would hear the voice of the Father calling to you and teaching you about the way that you can come to know him. This morning, as we look at the psalm, we are going to be talking about the theme of prosperity. And so I'd like to ask this morning uh, some questions uh, for you to consider as we begin about prosperity. How do you define prosperity? How do you get it? If you have become prosperous, what kind of fruit did it bear in your life? What kind of emotions or feelings were attached to it? And how long did that last? If you consider your character, did it make you a better person? Did it develop a deeper love for God in your heart? In the scriptures, sometimes we discover that what is deemed by the world as success or prosperity can lead some people to actually forget God. If that were to happen, would that still be success? As we look at this psalm this morning, we will see that what is often defined by the world as success or prosperity is a mirage. It is something that we view on the horizon. It looks beautiful. It looks good. But as we approach it, we find that it shifts. It moves. We cannot lay a hold on it. When we do reach there, it does not deliver the things that it has promised to us. And this morning, if maybe this has been your experience, as you have maybe pursued wealth or prosperity as defined by the world, but, but have found that it has not delivered all that it promised to you, then Psalm 30 has something for you and for us all uh, to learn this morning about what true prosperity is and where it comes from. The Psalms are uh, an amazing collection uh, of songs. They are powerful because they describe for us the real life circumstances and emotions of God's people in the past as they go through the ordinariness of life. And as the Psalms describe what they are going through, it helps us to understand our own lives, our own experiences, as well as often showing us how to respond to circumstances as we go through them. Now, this Psalm tells us uh, at the beginning uh, in the title that it's a Psalm of David. It tells us that it's a Psalm that was uh, sung at the dedication of the temple. And whilst we're not entirely sure exactly which dedication, this was the first or the second temple, and we're not sure if David wrote this specifically for that or whether it was a psalm that was later used, as we go through the psalm this morning, we will see this indeed is an apt psalm to be sung, to be used at a moment of celebration amongst God's people. And so as we have a look and we see this morning what true prosperity is, we're going to look at this psalm in four parts. Firstly, we're going to see in verse 1 to 5 the reflections of someone who has discovered true prosperity. Secondly, we're going to see the false confidence of someone who previously was trusting 
in worldly prosperity. Third, we'll see the way for anyone to receive true prosperity. And finally, we'll see the fruit of those who have discovered true prosperity. So let's begin and let's look at our first point. The reflections of someone of, in this particular case, David, who has discovered true prosperity in verse 1 to 5. David begins, and David says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. You have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. David begins by talking about how he he will extol or lift up or lift up a memorial to God's faithfulness. David is wanting to remember something about God and what God has done for him, how faithful this God is. Well, why is it that David is calling us to join in in giving thanks and praise in remembering the faithfulness of God? Well, David tells us, he says in verse 1, for you have drawn me up. You have not let my foes rejoice over me. It seems as though David has been through some kind of adversity. God has delivered him from some kind of a trial. As we read on uh, in verse 2, he says, O Lord, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. So it seems as though David's adversity or this trial that he's been through, that God has delivered him from, is some kind of a physical infirmity, some kind of an illness. We see the extent of this in the next verses. He says, O Lord, verse 3, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You've restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. David's illness clearly was an illness that was leading him uh, to what seemed to him probably to be a certain death. David was struck. David was not well. It seemed as though his life would come to an end. It seemed as though Sheol, the grave, the pit, was imminently approaching. And in this place... David cries out to God. He he cries out to God for God to deliver him. And God has done this. It might be, from what we see later with David referring to God's anger, that this may even be a way that God is getting David's attention. The loving discipline of a father to bring David back to the heart of God. We'll see this in a moment. So we see in the first three verses, David's thanksgiving for God's deliverance. And then in verse 4 to 5, still under our first point, David then invites all of us, all of us, those of us who are part of God's people, invites us to join with David in praising this God. He says in verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. We're invited to join in with David to worship and to praise this holy a righteous God. Why? Well, because God has delivered David. But as David goes on to, to, to speak in these verses, we see that David begins to teach us something about this God that he's inviting us to worship. He's telling us something about how this God operates. It's something about the economy of God's holiness. And David has this interesting phrase. He says in verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So what we notice here, we haven't yet unpacked exactly what's happening. We're just trying to understand what really is happening in the psalm. We see David's been delivered from some kind of an illness, it seems. He's cried out to God on his deathbed. God's delivered him. Now he's inviting us 
to, to worship and to praise this God, but he's telling us something about this God that he's inviting us to worship. This is a God who in the economy of his holiness is angry for a time. There is short anger, but for those who go through that, there is a lifetime of favor as well. There's something about this God we ought to notice. God does get angry. God does deal with us. There are tears. But for those who recognize this, for those who understand, who come to see the holiness of God, who recognize God's dealings in their life, who come through those tears and recognize it, there is joy in the morning that leads to a lifetime of favor. What is this lifetime of favor that David refers to? Well, I think we would, we would say, that I would say this morning that this indeed is true prosperity. You, you could translate this phrase, in his favor is life. When God bestows his true favor upon us, it is true life. We see references uh, to David writing like this in Psalm 63, where God says that your steadfast love, your covenantal love, is better than life itself. David has come to see and to taste, to experience something of the joy, the sweetness, the riches of the covenantal love of God that leads him elsewhere to declare this is better than anything else in all of life. And though David has gone through a night of weeping, it's led to a morning of, a morning of rejoicing and a lifetime of this favor, this closeness with God, this peace with God that we have as we'll see later, through Christ. No longer being separated from him, but, 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 but having fellowship with this triune God of the universe who is holy and glorious and promises favor to those who trust in his Son. So, so far, we've seen David's invitation. We've seen some clues to his circumstance. But what is it that, that got David to this place? And we see in the next two verses, our, our second point this morning, we see this morning the false confidence of someone trusting in worldly prosperity. Verse 6 and 7. Let's, let's read verse 6 and 7. David, da, da, David now begins to describe what, what happened to him that, that led him to go through this experience of nearly coming to the end of his life, but then discovering in God true prosperity. And David says in verse 6, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. David speaks here about a kind of prosperity that he had and that, had, that he had previously experienced. This word prosperity can be defined to be ease, it, could, it can be comfort, certainly material wealth, having all of the things that there may be many of us long for or desire or dream about, having a certain station in life, a certain status, certain financial security, maybe the family that we've dreamed of, maybe that perfect job with security that we think that we'll We'll never lose. David says, as for me, in my prosperity, defined in that way, he says, I shall never be moved. What we see here is, is that David reached a point in his life where he was prosperous by the world's standards. And this led David, as it leads many of us, to make statements of supreme self-confidence. I 
and firm. I shall never be moved. Now that I receive my bonus, nothing can go wrong. Now I have security for the future. Now that I've received this job, I'm made for life. Now that she agreed to marry me, doesn't matter what else happens, everything will be fine from now. However you define prosperity, David achieved it. David had it. But look at what it resulted in his life. He, it leads him to this point where he says, I shall never be moved. Now, let's be real. David truly had prospered the way that many of us may be tempted to define prosperity. As a teenage boy, David was in the field tending the sheep. His, his brothers far taller, more handsome, uh, more gifted possibly, more recognized by their father, were in the homestead. And the prophet of the nation, Samuel, comes into town. And he, he calls for all of David's brothers. He's going to pick from this family, as God has directed him, one who will be king over the nation. And they go through all of the sons, but Samuel says, no. Is there not another son? Is there not another brother? And the father scratches his head. Yes, there is one in the field. Go and send someone to bring in that shepherd boy. And David comes in. And can you imagine David walking into this room? His brothers lined up, Samuel there, a vial of oil. And Samuel says, this is the one, this is the man. And he anoints David and sets him apart as the one who in the future will become king of the nation. That's not a bad thing to happen in your teenage years. But that's not all. A couple of years later, David, an incredibly gifted musician and harpist, is called upon by those who tend to Saul, the man who was still then at that stage the king of the nation. Saul is plagued by depression and demons. And Saul needs a psalmist, someone who can come and sing and worship God, who will drive away his sadness. And they search, and throughout the kingdom, all, the only one they can find is David, who now is brought into the king's courts, plays for the king. And something about him that is able to lift Saul's depression. And that's not all. A number of years later, David goes to visit his brothers who are in the army. They're in battle. The Philistines are drawn up against them. There is a champion of the Philistines against God's people. This champion, Goliath, is in the valley taunting God's people. Who would come and fight me? Send one of your finest. And none will come to do this. And David looks and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And he would dare to defy the armies of the living God. And it takes a fair bit of arm wrangling, but he ends up convincing Saul and the others to let him go down. Many of us may know the story. With one stone, David slays Goliath. Leads the nation into military victory. So much so that one Samuel goes on to say that whilst there were thousands of women who were singing praises to Saul the king, Saul has slain his thousands. Now there's a second part to the song. And they say, but David has slain his tens of thousands. David literally has the woman of Israel singing his name. He is promised to be the future king. He is revered amongst many. Later on in his life, when he does become king, though there are many trials that he goes through, he has such great military success 
The one Chronicles describes all these military leaders that come and defect to David. Powerful men bringing their, their armies, their warriors, bowing the knee before David. We are yours, O son of Jesse. We are yours. So much so that the scriptures say that David's army grew mighty. And then it says this. So much so that his army became like the army of God. Friends, this, this truly is a man who had prosperity the way that many of us may be tempted to define it. But for David, his prosperity led to a sense of self-confidence. It led to him feeling like nothing can go wrong. Everyone loves me. My family is set. I'm the king of this nation. I have the army of God. None can come against us. And this prosperity changed David. Something happened to him. We, we see it in the psalm. Prosperity always changes us. Prosperity always changes us. I read an article uh, a number of months ago put out by an institute that were commenting that in some parts of the world, clearly not all, but in some parts there's been what they call a period of sustained prosperity, meaning that for a number of generations there have been people who have not faced war or extreme hardship. And they say that this has resulted in changes in people. People think that often nothing can go permanently wrong. Money fixes everything. So nothing can really go too badly wrong because there will always be enough money around and we can absorb any shock that may come our way. Sustained prosperity may lead to people thinking they can afford much of what they want. Suddenly they are spoiled for choice, but at the same time become increasingly dissatisfied with life, finding it boring, becoming ungrateful for even the blessings that they do have. We become spoiled. We become forgetful about what a life of discomfort was like. This all together results in a new value system that is narcissistic, that worships the self. And for many in the city that I come from, Singapore, I'm sure in this city as well, this is a great temptation. Where for many there is much prosperity. But as we discover in our own hearts, as David discovered, that prosperity often changes us. And so we see what happens here. God in his kindness does something to help David see this. God disciplines David, we could say. And he does so by hiding his face. Let's have a look in verse 7. David says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was dismayed. So so David gets to this point where he he is glorying in his own ability to stand firm. And God responds by turning his face or hiding his face. We know in the scriptures that God's face shining upon us, Numbers 6 verse 25, is a sign of God's blessing, his favor upon us. But now God hides his face, God turns his face. And what is the result? You hid your face and David says, I was dismayed. You can translate that word terrified. God, you turned your face from me, and in one moment, my world fell apart. I think a modern paraphrase translates it, you looked away, and my entire world fell apart. I remember a number of years ago, when I'd been married for about three years, the first few years of our marriage had not been easy financially, things had been very tight, but 
over a month or two, it seemed as though our fortunes seemed to be changing. I got a salary increment. Uh, a couple of things uh, happened in our circumstances with bills that we had that suddenly weren't as much as we thought or just various circumstances changed. And over a month or two, we suddenly found ourselves from being in a situation where we were quite tight monthly to actually having a little bit of extra money at the end of the month. And we started to feel quite comfortable about this and started to enjoy this. And really seemed as though God's favor was on us and somehow we were being blessed. I remember one day sitting down at my dining room table, uh, going through our budget, and I distinctly remember a feeling of, of kind of confidence or smugness. I I'm not sure if that's a, a word, but, but just feeling smug, feeling, oh, finally, I can just, just breathe out. Things are going to be okay. We're going to make it. But at the same time, there was a pride that kind of crept in. And although I, I could identify it at the time, I didn't act on it. But there was this kind of delighting in our situation, that a kind of delighting in it that I know is only reserved for God. I began to trust. I began to find my joy. I began to find my confidence in that blessing that we had received. And... I think it was probably within a day or two of that happening. Sorry. I remember as that happened, thinking, having this kind of image in my mind, that it was almost as though for our married life, the tap of blessing had been very tightly shut, and one or two drops had dropped out every now and again. And suddenly it seemed as though the taps had kind of just opened a little bit. I'm just feeling kind of smug about this. I certainly crossed the line in my heart. And I, it must have been within 24 or 48 hours. Only the Lord knows how he can orchestrate these events to happen like this. But the tap shut very firmly again. Suddenly, some of the gains I thought we'd made were eradicated very quickly by one or two other bills that came in. Some calculations we had made I discovered were actually wrong. We were actually in a worse situation than I thought. And I, I was amazed how... Living under the sovereignty of God, God is the one who can open the taps but can close the taps very quickly as well. To help me to remember, where does my joy come from? And this is what, something of what happened to David. He describes what happened to him as being dismayed. He, he, he was terrified. God's face turned away. His world fell apart. Hebrews 12 describes something of this. It's not quite the same context. But the book of Hebrews describes a time of shaking that God sometimes brings. Hebrews 12 verse 26 says, At that time his voice shook the earth. Now he has promised. Yet once again I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And sometimes God in his sovereignty allows our lives to be shaken. So that those things that can be shaken fall aside. So that we freshly see those things which cannot be shaken. That those things may remain in our lives. This is God's tough love. To save David from self-reliance. Because David has forgotten that God alone is his sustainer. That God is his mountain. As he says here in verse 7. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. David had forgotten this. When you hid your face, I became dismayed. And I recognize this. Friends, this means for us this morning that we should all evaluate our lives 
according to these kingdom criteria. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? Let's go back to the questions we asked at the beginning. How do, we, how do you define prosperity? How do you get it? What does it result in? Does it last? Can you make it last? Does it make you a better person? Well, let me ask it this way. Do you perceive your successes and failures in life by the world's or by God's standards? Well, to put it this way, are your failures true failures? Some of you have been through difficult circumstances, but, in, but through those you have come to trust and to know the eternal God who loves us with a covenantal love. Have difficult circumstances led you to humble dependence upon this God? When I finished high school, uh, the year after high school, a, a man that was in, a, a fellow student of mine, was diagnosed with leukemia. He, as far as I was aware, was not a Christian during high school. And so I went to go and visit him in, in the hospital. And I was uh, anxious to, 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 to consider how I could try and present the gospel to this man. The doctor said that it was very advanced and he would probably not survive. When I arrived at the hospital after a few minutes of speaking to him, I discovered to my great joy that I did not need to witness to him. I did not need to share the gospel because over the last few months of him discovering that he had been diagnosed with leukemia, he had heard the gospel and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And I went to the hospital to go and encourage this man, wondering what words can I bring to this man to encourage him in a circumstance. And I left that hospital being encouraged by him. Because he said to me, he said these words, he said, Simon, he said, if I had not gone through this, I would never have come to see my need for God. I would never come to, to know my sinfulness before him. I would never have come to know and understand my need for a savior, Jesus Christ. He said, and now I have received the greatest joy in life, the forgiveness of my sins. I'm redeemed as a son of God through Christ. Have some of your failures led you to, to trust and to know God in a deeper way? Let's ask it in the converse. Maybe for some of us who feel we've been successful in some ways, evaluating them by these criteria, are us, are, have our successes been true successes? Or have they led us away from God? If success or prosperity or victory doesn't lead us to praise and to glory in God, I put it to us this morning by God's word. It's not true success. It's only the mirage of success. It's defeat disguised as, this, as success. Being a stage four cancer patient with little hair, translucent skin, but yet with a, an inner man, as we heard this morning, that's being renewed day by day, built upon the bedrock of God's care for us in Christ, is better, friends, than being Mr. or Miss World, built on the flimsy foundation of self. Do we see this this morning? Let's end this point by asking again, how prosperous are we? So how is it then that David responds? David, clearly we've seen so far, has, has come to see this. Maybe this morning many of us see this 
in our lives. What does David do? How does he get out of the circumstance? And this leads us to our third point this morning, which is the way for anyone to receive true prosperity. We see in verse 8 to 10 the response of David as David begins to to rebuild his life upon God. David says in verse 8, this is how he responds. David says, to you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. It's interesting that David uses this word mercy. For David, David recognizes that for us to forget God as sustainer of our lives, as the one that our lives are built upon, it's not simply a matter of bad etiquette. It's not as though David just forgot his manners for a moment and didn't give correct due, uh, credit to where credit is due. No, David recognizes that how he's lived his life in self-dependence, in autonomy, is not just disrespectful toward God. This is high treason against God who has made all things and who, as Colossians tells us, continues to sustain all things. The God who has created us, made us for himself and for his glory, and continues to sustain all things by his, by his powerful word. When we turn our back on him, do not acknowledge him and live for ourselves, by ourselves, giving credit to ourselves, this is not just bad manners. This is high treason against the God of the universe. It requires mercy. And this leads David to cry out for mercy. It means that he begins to weep. This is why David has said, weeping may tarry for the night. And David does begin to weep. He begins to mourn over his sin, how he has rebelled against God in this way. We see further clues to this in verse 11, I believe it is, where David talks about how later God has turned his sackcloth, his loose sackcloth, sackcloth were, were clothes that they wore in times of mourning and repentance. David is speaking very clearly here about his need to recognize how his, his autonomy is actually sin against this sustaining God. And that the rightful response is to turn from that in repentance. To weep over his sins, to grieve over them. David here is thoroughly repenting. How, how do we know this? Because of what we've seen. He calls out for mercy. But we see also that, that David then begins to put his faith and to trust in God. He begins to, to utter these phrases in, in verse 9 that shows us that what's happening in David's heart is not just a turning away from that kind of autonomous way of living, but a trust in God. For us, we would say a trust in Christ. David says in verse 9, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? David is saying to God, God, I've recognized how I've lived my life. I'm going to weep over that and turn from that. But but now, God, now that I've seen who you are, who, who I am, what truly makes me stand firm, what true prosperity is, now, God, I'm going to turn and live for your glory. I'm going to praise your faithfulness. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell of your goodness. And God, if I go to the pit, I'm not going to be able to do that. David is pledging himself to God. That any life that he lives now, he will live by faith, trusting in this great God. He will live not to say, any longer I shall not be moved but he will live to praise God's glory. He says to God at the end of verse 10, Hear me, O Lord, be merciful to me. O God, be my helper. David is recognizing now that this life 
If God will continue to grant him life, must be a life lived by faith, by trust in God himself. True, true prosperity is, is knowing God, his mercy, his faithfulness forever. The favor that is not simply fleeting and cannot be carried beyond the grave, but the true prosperity that lasts forever. It's interesting that as we look at these verses, we, we do see the word favor or prosperity actually being used in two different ways. In verse 5, there is the favor from God that lasts a lifetime. In verse, five, in verse 6, we see that there is prosperity that can come and go like this. David has previously gloried in that prosperity that can go in a moment as God turns his face. But now he's come to discover the true prosperity that lasts a lifetime in God. Where does this true prosperity come from? The scriptures show us that we all, every one of us included, if you're visiting this morning, it's your first time in a church, whether you're one of the elders here and for myself, we all at one time have lived self-sufficient, self-dependent lives, crediting our success to ourselves. But because as I describe this is treason, against the God of the universe who gives us life. It means that the wages of this, the outworking of this, the fruit of this is death. That this is the rightful response to those who would turn away, rebel against this living God, and walk in the direction of death, trusting in ourselves above this holy God. This is the outworking of this. But the glorious news of the gospel is that in Christ we see the great news of Christianity. We see, as 2 Corinthians 8 says, that we serve a God who, though is rightfully angry with sin and must punish sin, we serve a God who is rich in mercy, full of grace and compassion. We see in 2 Corinthians 8 that this God, His Son Christ, who, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, though He was rich, though because of His grace, He left the riches of heaven, and he became poor for our sakes. He came and lived on earth. He emptied himself of the riches of heaven. He became incarnated. He came and lived amongst us. He lived the life of one of us, although yet without sin. And 2 Corinthians 8 says that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. So that through his poverty, we might receive the riches of heaven. As, we, as was read in our call to worship this morning, Philippians chapter 2, this is Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself for our sake, and he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Friends, we serve a God who in himself has, every, has true prosperity, has true joy, has true life. And Christ, who is at the Father's right hand from all eternity past, he came in love for us. He came and emptied himself for our sakes. He came and lived a sinless life on this earth. He went to the cross, the scriptures say, to die a sinner's death, though he himself had committed no sin. And he died and he hung upon that cross for sinners like you and I. He is the one who truly bore the wrath of God for a moment. And the scriptures say that he carried the punishment that should have been ours. But then death could not hold him. And three days later he rose again from the grave. 
conquering sin and death. So that now all of us who turn from our sin and put our faith in this redeeming, saving God who has come to save us from our sins, we now can enter into the joy, the true prosperity of our master, of God, through not our own good deeds, not our own excellence, but through faith in Christ alone. He, Jesus, took God's momentary anger so that we can have God's favor forever. And this is why Hebrews 12 goes on to say that through Christ we are now gifted an unshakable kingdom. I read Hebrews 12 verse 26 to 27, but the next line goes on to say, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving, for being given a kingdom that cannot be shaken through Christ, who has come to redeem us in this way. So this morning, let us recognize true prosperity and let us cling to Christ who gives it to us. As the scriptures say, as David says, this comes to many of us after a night of mourning, after true repentance. Weeping about how our sins have grieved God is the right response. This is not weakness. Though many of us may see this as being weakness, this is necessary as we come to recognize how we have lived apart from God. But we truly come to understand the riches we have in Christ only once we've been through a night of mourning and recognizing how we have turned from this God. But what does this mean for us? Does, does this mean somehow that, that we as Christians should turn our back on, on all worldly wealth? Does this mean that if your boss offers you a promotion that you should turn it down? Does this mean that you should reject your bonus if you receive it? Does this mean that we should intentionally avoid every kind of trapping of what the world sees as prosperity? No, not necessarily. This does not mean that all success is inherently bad. Let's remember where the psalm was used. The psalm was read at the dedication of the temple. This, truly, for God's people, would have been one of the most glorious moments for them. This would have been a moment where, where many of these blessings of God came to them and they were celebrating God's goodness and God's kindness to them. But yet, in the midst of, the, of that moment, in the midst of things going well, in the midst of them celebrating, they chose to read this psalm. A psalm that reminds them about what true prosperity is and where it comes from. So then in the midst of things going well, they do not become like David and like many of us to glory and to take our confidence in these things and to no longer trust in God. And this is the encouragement for us today. As we go about living our lives as faithful Christians in these global cities of the world, let us remember that whatever comes to us comes from the hand of God. And whether it's riches or adversity, God is the one who sustains us. And let us live with a constant confession that God alone is the one who makes our mountain stand firm. And he, he alone is the one from whom true blessing and prosperity comes. Finally, in the psalm, we see the fruit of someone who has discovered this true prosperity. We see in verse 11 and 12. David says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
We see that this prosperity is seen here by this word gladness in verse 11, which is really a similar word as as rejoicing, joy and gladness found in verse 1. We see that David is calling all of us to to join and to to rejoice, to find our joy in God's covenantal steadfast love, to find our delight in Him. And this is a a sign for us that we truly have come to know this great and glorious God. That in what He's done for us in Christ, there's a sense of joy and satisfaction deep in our hearts that is independent of our circumstances. God's forgiveness of our sins Our security in Christ leads to joyful singing and dancing. And David says here, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. David is is, is one who feels the sense of joy in his heart in God alone. And many of of his other Psalms bear testament to this. And when David talks about dancing, he's not just using this phrase in a metaphoric kind of a way. We know that, that David really could dance. When the ark came back, he danced. He stripped off some of his clothes even so much and danced that his wife despised him in her heart. When David invites us as God's people to sing, to rejoice, to delight in God, David is, is urging us truly to find a deep joy that, that leads us to an expressive worship in God. Do you have this kind of joy in God? Have you come to understand the, the desperateness of our sin? apart from Christ, and then come to see the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us, so much so that it leads to this kind of inner peace and joy. Let us sing together today as God's people in holy joy. Because true prosperity comes to us as a gift in Christ, because this gift, because it comes as a gift, because it's not because of our good works, it means that when it comes to us, it will not change us for the worse. But rather, it will actually serve to humble us and make us as God's people more gracious. This gift of God's favor in Christ levels the cultural playing field. It means that that all of us, no matter what our background is, we have one great thing in common to glory in and to boast in, and that is Christ alone. This church this morning, as ours is back in Singapore, is an incredibly diverse church. And this, friends, is the power of true unity. While we appreciate and recognize, honestly recognize the many differences in nationalities, ages, cultures, socioeconomic status, education levels, we see beyond that as we gather together as God's people. Because we have one truly great thing in common. We have Christ and the joy that comes from Him. That does not come by any of our good deeds or good works, but simply by recognizing our sin and trusting in Christ. And this means we together today are unified in true prosperity at the foot of the cross, where there is neither African nor Eastern person. There is neither rich nor poor. There is neither young nor old. There is neither person who has a PhD or someone who hasn't even finished high school. But there is one in Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over and in and through all. Friends, as David shows us this morning, the best success in life is a gift of God that cannot be earned. It cannot be taken away. It's more valuable than anything else and is available to all through Christ. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so no matter who we are today, I invite us to end this morning by going to God in prayer, by trusting in Him. If you're here this morning 
and you have never turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, I would invite you to do so this morning. Let's go to God and glory in His Son together. Oh, Father God, we come to you this morning as men and women from a great diversity of backgrounds, oh God. Oh God, this morning we recognize and confess together that we are so prone to depend upon ourselves and our own abilities. We are so prone to rebel against you, O God, by being self-sufficient. O God, this morning we pray that, that your Spirit would continue to work in our hearts, to open the eyes of our heart, to see our poverty before you. But more than just to see that, to see the riches that we have in Christ, who emptied himself for our sake, that through his poverty, through him dying for us upon the cross, we may become rich in him. And help us to turn joyfully to your son this morning in repentance and put our faith in him and to receive the joy of our master. We ask this in Christ's name. Let us respond this morning by standing to our feet and singing to this God who has gladly saved us in Christ. Amen.